Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. Today's episode is going to be about owning individual stocks and how you can actually do better owning individual stocks, specifically from a tax planning standpoint. So what we're going to be talking about is how can you use individual stocks to actually enhance your long-term returns, knowing that it's not every particular account or everyone that this will apply to, but understanding when it will. This episode was prompted by a question from a listener, so thank you very much for all of you who have submitted questions. I review every single one, and every single week we'll look to respond to one of them. So this one's a good one, and it comes from a listener. I'm going to call her Sarah. Sarah says this, My husband is 55, and I am 50. We have two teenage sons. We have no debt other than home mortgage. We have a cash emergency fund and two paid-for rental houses. All of our remaining money, which is approximately $2 million, is invested in low-cost index mutual funds across Roth IRAs, 401ks, HSAs, 529s, and brokerage accounts. I've been wondering if we should be invested in individual stocks rather than mutual funds. Would this be better for tax loss harvesting? What are the pros and cons? We have about 80% in stocks and 20% in bonds. Thanks tons. All right. Well, thank you for that question. And there's two very important components to this question. There's number one, the investment side of it. When we're talking about individual stocks, how does that fare from an investment standpoint? And what are the things you absolutely need to know as an investor before going into this? And then number two, from a tax planning standpoint. So with tax loss harvesting, which I will explain in more detail on how you can use individual stocks to potentially enhance that. To begin though, before we jump into the tax piece, let's start with the investment piece. I know that this is a tax question and there are tax planning opportunities, so stay tuned for those. But we have to compare that to the investment side because you cannot separate the two of those here. So there's some wonderful information in a piece by JP Morgan. It's part of their Eye on the Market special edition, and it's called The Agony and the Ecstasy, The Risks and Reward of a Concentrated Stock Position. There's some really, really helpful information in here. But what it's all about is it's about owning individual stocks, because as investors, we're always hearing about the big winners, Apple, Amazon. Tesla, Google, these stocks that have done incredible returns or generated incredible returns over time. And we always want to say, how can we find the next one of those? And it becomes an obsession to a lot of people. And it's not hard to see why when you see what these stocks can do. Let's actually look at the top performing stock from 2000 to 2020. And oftentimes I'll ask people to guess what it was. And immediately people start guessing, okay, well, it's got to be Amazon or it's Apple or it's Google. You know, it's one of these companies that's one of the biggest companies in the world. And then they're very surprised to learn that the top performing company over that time period, so 2000, 2020 in the U.S. stock market, was Monster Energy. It was an energy drink. Not a lot of people know that, but it was up over 39% per year in annualized returns. Now, that sounds like a lot, but it's impossible to truly understand how crazy that return was until you see what that does over two decades. So a 39% return per year, that adds up to a cumulative return over those 20 years of 102,655%. So right there, that sounds like a big number, but we still just can't grasp what does that even mean when you apply that to a dollar value? Well, if you had put $100,000 in a Monster Energy stock on January 1st of 2000, that would have turned into over $102 million 
by the end of 2020. $100,000 turned to over $102 million 20 years later. That is a life-changing amount of money for anybody. You compare that to the S&P 500, which over that same exact time period was up 6.6% per year. Now that sounds low to a lot of people. He's probably say, wait, I thought it's been up a lot more. Well, it has in the last decade, but from 2000 to 2010, the S&P 500 was actually negative from start to finish. Total return, including dividends being reinvested. So when you place a really tough year from 2000 to 2010, and then a really great decade from 2010 to 2020, you get the average annualized return of 6.6%. Had you put $100,000 there instead of Monster Energy, your $100,000 turned to $383,000. So not horrible, but a whole lot less money than $102 million. So it's not hard to see why the temptation and the allure of stock picking is there, because if you get the right stock, you can make an incredible amount of money. The question is, what's the odds of that happening? So going back to that JP Morgan piece that I referenced, what this piece did, it examined the Russell 3000, which if the S&P 500, generally speaking, measures and tracks the top 505 biggest companies in the United States, the Russell 3000 tracks the top 3000 publicly traded companies. So this is like 99% of all publicly traded stocks in the United States. So a much, much broader sample size of the actual US stock market. So in doing this, what they did is they got a real sense for how easy or hard is it to pick individual stocks. Now, a quick side note, So stepping away from the Russell 3000 for a second and just going back to the S&P 500 since 1980, what they saw, so S&P 500 again, tracks about the 505 biggest companies in the United States. Over 320 companies were deleted from the S&P 500 since 1980 for business distress reasons. So what we get now is we see this index and it's been on an incredible run. What we don't often see or pay attention to as much is there's an incredible level of competition between publicly traded companies, so much so that a lot of these companies just go out of business. So since 1980, you had 320 companies that were deleted from the S&P 500 for business distress reasons. And I say business distress reasons because there were others that were deleted, but it's because they were the target of a takeover or a merger. So the company's no longer there, but it's more because they folded into another company or were acquired by another company. But 320 were deleted for business distress reasons. Now, I'm going to read a quote that comes directly from this piece. JP Morgan says, this should not be a surprise. Capitalism is based on competition, creative destruction, and reinvention. While globalization, and in particular, China's acceptance into the World Trade Organization in 2001, expanded the opportunities for individual companies, it also increased their competitive, regulatory, and operational risks, end quote. So this, as a backdrop, starts to show or starts to paint a picture for us of why it's so difficult to pick individual stocks, but it's not until we actually start to understand how difficult it is through looking at the numbers that we can truly see this. So here's some information directly from this piece. So I'm reading directly from this JP Morgan piece again. It says this, the risk of impairment using the universe of Russell 3000 companies since 1980, roughly 40% of all stocks have suffered a permanent 70% plus decline from their peak value. For technology, biotech, and metals and mining, the numbers were considerably higher, end quote. That's astonishing. We don't see this a lot because in recent years, it seems like you own any stock and it goes up, but four out of 10 stocks that were in the Russell 3000 
had a permanent decline from their peak value. So they dropped by 70% or more and never recovered, or at least didn't recover close to their break-even point ever again. That as an investor is not something you can live with. If all of your capital is invested into one single company or even a handful of these companies, and there's a permanent 70 plus percent decline, you just aren't going to meet your goals when that's the case. The article then went on to look at the median stock and showed how negative lifetime returns of the individual components of the Russell 3000, how negative they were when compared to the broad market. So here's another quote. It says the return on the median stock since its inception versus an investment in the Russell 3000 index was negative 54%. Two thirds of all stocks underperformed versus the Russell 3000 index. And for 40% of all stocks, their absolute returns were negative, end quote. So what does that mean? It means if you take the median stock, the median stock underperformed its own index by under 54% or by negative 54% is a better way of saying that. That seems like an impossible stat. It seems like the math doesn't add up there. How can the median stock underperform the index by 54%? Well, it's because you have a handful of companies that have absolutely incredible returns. These are returns that are far greater than the index average as a whole. And so they skew the average upwards fairly significantly, but the median stock, it underperforms pretty significantly. Then goes on to say two thirds of all stocks underperform versus the Russell 3000 index. Meaning if you're going to go pick a stock randomly, two out of three times, that stock's going to underperform the index as a whole. And 40% of all the stocks had negative absolute returns. So you see this and you start to get an understanding of, okay, going back to the quote I mentioned earlier of capitalism is based on competition and creative destruction and reinvention, which is good for society as a whole. You can start to see how difficult it is for an investor trying to pick a publicly traded company that's going to outperform. The numbers here speak for themselves. Now, I know this probably sounds pretty frightening for a lot of people saying, well, how on earth are you supposed to get ahead as an investor? Well, maybe it's just not by owning individual stocks. You can, and there's a chance, and it's not a negligible chance. There's a pretty decent chance you make money, but there's a much greater chance you end up underperforming the overall market. Now, before this seems too negative, consider this. You don't have to outperform the market to get incredible returns. So when you frame it as, oh my gosh, what individual stock do I have to pick to try to outperform? Well, you're going to have a pretty tough go at it. But if you're simply saying, well, can I capture the returns of the market? Well, if you go back to 1980 and just look at the returns on the S&P 500 since then, had you put $10,000 into the S&P 500 at the beginning of 1980, all the way through the end of 2021, that $10,000 investment would have turned into over $1.16 million at the end of last year. So that's the good news is, yes, the battle and the competition is intense when you're looking at these publicly traded companies themselves and trying to pick the one that's going to outperform the market. It's very difficult. A lot of them don't. A lot of them suffer negative absolute returns. But the good news here is if you're owning the entire index, as evidenced by the S&P 500 or the Russell 3000, your returns can still be pretty incredible. So that's the first part that I wanted to address in this question is what are the investment implications of owning individual stocks? And are you better off doing that or better off being more diversified? So just a side note on this, when I talk to people about being diversified and spreading out their money, sometimes there's this connotation of, oh, that's the boring conservative thing to do. But if you really want to make money, you go pick individual stocks. 
in my mind, it couldn't be further from the truth. I want to diversify because I want to make the most money possible. And I want to stack the odds in my favor everywhere I possibly can. And evidence time and time and time again shows that the best way to do that is through having a well-diversified portfolio, not just well-diversified in anything, but diversified in the right stuff that fits you and your goals and your investment objectives and everything else like that. But being diversified isn't saying, oh, I'm taking the conservative boring way out. To me, it's saying I'm taking the way out that's going to generate the most returns, or at least give me the highest probability of having the greatest returns. So that's part one of my response to Sarah's question. Really what Sarah was asking about was the tax side. And now I want to go into that, but not without having first talked about the investment side. So here's the reality when you own individual stocks. The answer is yes. There are more tax loss harvesting opportunities when you own individual stocks. And let's back up a second and give an overview of what tax loss harvesting is. Let's say you buy a stock. Now, this doesn't have to be a stock. It could be real estate. It could be a bond. It could be precious metal. Really, it's anything you make an investment into. But I'm going to use a stock for the sake of this example. Well, if you hold that stock outside of a retirement account and that stock goes up in value and you sell it, you pay gains or you pay taxes on the gains. If that stock goes down in value and you sell it, there's what's called a loss, a capital loss, and you could potentially write that loss off on your tax return. Now, this only works outside of retirement accounts because if you're doing this in a 401k or a Roth IRA or traditional IRA or any other qualified retirement plan, all the gains and losses are just deferred there. So that's going to grow tax deferred or tax free depending on the account type, and you cannot do tax loss harvesting there. But if you have a brokerage account, what you can do is when you own an investment, you own a stock and that stock is down, if you sell that stock, you can lock in a loss that you can use to write off against your taxes. Now, there's rules around this. There's something called a wash sale rule. So you can't just sell the stock and immediately repurchase it to lock in the loss. You have to sell the stock and wait over 30 days and then repurchase it. Or maybe you buy a similar but not exact same stock or investment instead but that's what tax loss harvesting is. And the nice thing is you can use tax loss harvesting to number one, offset any capital gains that you have up to however much you have in capital losses. So say you sell a property and you have $100,000 of capital gains there. Well, if your stock portfolio has 50,000 of losses, those losses you can't write off unless you actually sell the investment. So let's say you sell those investments, you lock in a $50,000 loss, and then you repurchase very similar investments because the last thing we want to do is sell when things are down and then not reinvest. But as long as we're not violating the wash sale rule and we purchase similar investments, what we've done is we've maintained our overall exposure to the same type of investments, but we've now booked that loss. And now we can take that $50,000 loss, write it off against our $100,000 gain on the sale of our property. And now when we go to pay taxes, we only pay taxes on the $50,000 of capital gains, not the full hundred. So that's one benefit of tax loss harvesting is you can write off capital losses against capital gains. You can also write off up to $3,000 per year of capital losses against ordinary income. So your ordinary income would be things like your salary or a pension or any other income that's not capital gains, but you're limited to a max of $3,000 per year. Now, let's say you sell something at a loss for $10,000. You can only write off up to 3,000 of that this year against ordinary income, but then the remaining 7,000 can carry forward next year and the year after and the year after. So it's not bad to quote unquote bank these losses because you can continue to use them. So that's what tax loss harvesting is in a nutshell. And there are gains to be had in tax loss harvesting. Clearly you can write off losses against your taxes. 
But, and this is why I want to start with the investment side of this. In order to do this effectively, you need to make sure any gains you get from this aren't offset by bad returns in your investments. Because let's say I own five stocks and they all go down and they all stay down. Well, the good news is I have some capital losses and I can sell those, but the bad news is I have horrible returns. And even then of taxes, I may be underperformed the index. So what we have to do is we have to say, can we get some tax benefits from individual stocks without sacrificing the returns that we get from being more diversified? So to really do this effectively, we still want to have that diversification and diversification comes from owning a whole bunch of different stocks. So what do you do as an investor? Yes, there's some tax benefits, but we also have to balance that, as I mentioned, with the investment returns. Well, a way that's getting pretty popular now and actually has a ton of merit is through something called direct indexing. Now, direct indexing, just to make sure I'm being very clear, it can be extraordinarily beneficial, but it's certainly not for everyone. And there's some key considerations you want to make sure you understand before you understand if it's best for you. But here's what it is. Let's say you buy the S&P 500 index, for example. Well, when you own the index, you have the average return of the 500 plus companies within there. So let's take an example. Let's take a look at 2017. If you own the S&P 500 index in 2017, your average return is around 21%. So there's really no tax loss harvesting opportunities at all there. You have a pretty good return. You have a very good return, but there's no opportunities for tax loss harvesting. But look at this. In that year, when the S&P 500 index was up about 21%, 119 of the member stocks, so of the individual components of the S&P 500, actually had negative returns. That's almost a quarter of the entire index that the index as a whole was up 21%. So if you own the whole index, there's no tax loss harvest opportunities. The market cap average weighted return of those companies was 21%. If you owned all the individual stock components, then you could get, at least come very close to that same return, and you also have the opportunity to harvest losses on almost the 25% of stocks that were down that year that you could use to write off against other capital gains or partially against ordinary income. So this is where the opportunity exists. Now, you as an individual investor, anyone as an individual investor, manually placing these trades, manually looking for tax loss harvesting opportunities, one, it's incredibly time consuming. And number two, you just don't have the speed or the ability to do this super effectively. But studies have shown that tax loss harvesting opportunities through a direct index type approach, if you're doing this frequently enough, and by doing it, I don't mean actually making trades every single day, but monitoring this for potential trades on a daily basis, it can add 1% or more of alpha or extra returns to your portfolio simply through the tax benefits that come with it. Now, the challenge here for a lot of investors is the technology required to do this. You're not going to do this effectively. You have an extremely small chance of doing this effectively if you're going to go try to buy the 505 biggest or 505 companies in the S&P 500 today. And you're going to monitor it every day to see what's down, what's up. And you're going to make sure that you're doing or looking out for wash sale rules. This is not something that, one, you probably want to spend your time doing, nor two, do you have the ability to do, not even the best and brightest people do, which is where technology comes in. Now, this is not actually a new concept. It's getting more popular now, but in the past, you wouldn't qualify for one of these things. You wouldn't have access to the technology to do this unless you had multiple, multiple millions of dollars in your portfolio. You know, if you had 20 million or 30 million or 50 million, the great big institutions would have their quants and apply the software and have the ability to do this for your portfolio. But there's very high minimums and there's also very high costs sometimes. 
And if you get the great benefits of something, but you pay tremendous costs to get it, well, at what point do the costs outweigh the benefit? So to do this at a price point that makes sense historically required a portfolio value of many, many millions of dollars. Today, thankfully, that number has dropped and that number's sometimes as low as a few hundred thousand dollars to do it effectively, in my opinion. There are some firms that will do it for lower, but it's not yet effective. But there's some very key and significant developments by some firms I'm keeping a very close eye on that keep driving that minimum down and keep driving that cost down because when it's available at a low enough price point and the technology is sufficient to get the gains, the tax loss alpha, the tax alpha on top of this, this can be a meaningful return to investors as a whole. Now, who does this work for? The people who are going to get the best benefit for this, of course, are higher income individuals and high income tax states. So if you're in California, for example, and you're in the top income tax bracket, you could get significant benefits, maybe 1% or more based upon many studies that show the benefits of this, of extra returns in the form of tax savings on an annual basis. Now, if you are, say, in Florida or Texas and your federal income tax brackets, maybe 12% or so, you're just not going to get the same benefits. And the reason for that's pretty clear. If you're in a state like California, your total tax bill might be 50 plus percent of your income. When you look at net investment income tax, when you look at state taxes, when you look at federal taxes, it can easily be 50% or more of your total income versus if you're in Florida or Texas or another no income tax state and you're in a relatively low federal bracket, say 12%, you just don't have as, it's not going to have as meaningful of an impact for you. But typically if you are investing outside of a retirement account, so if you're investing in a brokerage account, if you are a high income individual and, and this is kind of the kicker, if you like to do charitable giving, this can actually be an incredible solution. And the reason for that is the charitable giving is what you're doing in these accounts is you are squeezing out as much as you possibly can in losses, in capital losses inside of your tax loss harvesting account. And you're using those losses to write off against other capital gains or even ordinary income. And what you're doing is you're building in more unrealized gains. And if instead of having to sell those gains on those stocks, you could gift it to charity and you don't actually end up paying taxes on the unrealized gain because you gift the stock in kind, the charity sells it, and you both win. So I'm not talking about this as if direct indexing is the only way to do this, but Sarah, in response to your question, just to go back up and kind of summarize what we're talking about today, yes, there are absolutely more opportunities for tax loss harvesting when you own individual stocks. The challenge you're up against with that is are you deteriorating your returns that you otherwise would have gotten from a more diversified portfolio? So there's multiple ways to do this, but direct indexing is something that's becoming more and more popular because it's becoming more and more accessible. The technology is becoming more effective. The price point is getting lower. This is a great thing for investors as a whole, especially investors that are in higher income tax brackets, because it can have some real significant impact to the bottom line. So really appreciate the question. I hope that was helpful. If you have not done so already, please leave a review for the podcast. Helps more people find us. Check us out on YouTube. If you haven't done so already, we are at Root Financial Partners. And that is it for today. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time.
Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.